Hello, I am Rachel Schusterman, and you are listening to episode 28 of A Positive Podcast, a podcast where we discuss ideas and concepts on our emotional well-being and how we can educate ourselves to be a better version of ourselves. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com, or through Instagram at apositivecoach. If you're curious to hear more information on what positive coaching is, or to set up your free consultation with me for a positive coaching session, you can reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com. Today, I'm sharing with you all a conversation between my husband, Rabbi Nehemia Shusterman, and Mrs. Devorah Shabtai. Devorah is a licensed clinical social worker and a Jewish mom who works in the Jewish recovery community, helping many people as they journey towards sobriety. This interview conversation addresses, among many other things, religious trauma, which at times can be part of the crisis, and interestingly enough, can also be the solution for the addict. Devorah takes us into this treatment center world and gives us the background as to how someone might get themselves there and get the work done and help them on their road to recovery. I think you will find this conversation to be insightful and helpful. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Okay, thank you, Devorah Shaptai, for joining us today in another positive podcast. If I would have to summarize what today's conversation would be, is I want to try to tackle just for a little bit addiction, mental health, recovery in the firm world, why it's happening, what's happening, um, is there anything we can do about it? And uh, I'm going to throw some questions out, but feel free to redirect the conversation if there are certain things that you feel are important to cover. So, why don't you start by giving us a little bit of a background on yourself? You know, where do you come from? How did you get into this line of work? Um, this is not probably what a nice Jewish girl says. Oh, when I this is what I want to do when I grow up. I want to be, you know, a, a, a VP of clinical development in a in a in a rehab that has either a Jewish rehab or has a Jewish track. So, how did you get here? Right. Absolutely. This is this is certainly not where I thought I'd end up. Like I think most of our most of our journeys. Um, and yeah, I'll keep you know keep this story brief because I think I'm a lot less interesting than uh, than the field itself. Um, but it really started because you know I have two for, for the past uh, say 15 years or so the past the two um, really deep passions. Um, one, uh, spiritual and religious development. Really understanding you know how one comes to to have their their religious uh, identities you know, how they come to connect to certain parts of you know, Yiddishkeit and where certain struggles are, and really understanding that. And, and of course, you know, mental health itself was, was always, in psychological uh, issues was always a deep interest of mine. And for a while, I kind of viewed them as two separate two separate dimensions. Um, you know, in the beginning of my, my career, I actually worked at the same time at a seminary. I worked with young, young adult women on their, on their path towards spiritual growth. Um, and at the same time, I was working um, with uh, with Dr. David Rossmarin at the Center for Anxiety and learning how to conduct psychological assessments and really understand psychology and mental health on a deeper level. And so I kind of kept these two two areas of myself, um, you know, parallel rather than uh, intersecting. And uh, when I you know when I went to school to become um, a therapist and my one of my first internships was addiction, I really really felt like, okay, this is where both of these passions of mine are, are meeting and converging. Um, you know, of course, addiction has such a spiritual element to it in terms of, you know, the 12 steps themselves and one's own spiritual connection ultimately being such a, a positive resource and a tool. 
Um, and on the flip side, a lot of uh, people, and we'll get into this, a lot of people in our communities who are falling into addiction and struggling with mental health, there's usually a, a story there in terms of their own religious um, identities and their connection in, in the community. And so when I started working with Jewish individuals struggling with addiction, that's really where, for me, you know, my, my passions coincided, and I really fell in love with this work um, and started to, to be very interested on an academic level as well, how religion and spirituality play a role both in the healing process um, as well as in the religious traumas that a person might struggle with and turn to addiction as an escape for this. Um, and then, so that's kind of the, you know, the professional and on a personal level, you know, I, my, um, my, I, my, my whole life really was uh, connected to the 12 steps. My father is uh, a psychiatrist who is in long-term recovery. And so we had, you know, 12 step conversations at our dinner table, but I never wanted to be someone who would be that, you know, addiction therapist who, you know, had their own, had their own journey. And so I never thought I would come into this, but of course, you know, Hashem uh, had, had everything kind of come full circle. Wow. Okay. So in that little, not even monologue, just in that opening background, you, you hit on so many topics that I wanted to get to later, but you know what, let's let the direction go in the direction that it goes and we'll, we'll uh, circle back around if needed. Okay. So you, you said something really let's interesting. In. Pardon me? So you're sure let's, let's jump in. I know the, the heavy topics and the light topics, and we'll, we'll do it all together. Okay. So you, you just said something about, you know, religious trauma. So you hear this a lot. It, it's it's becoming much more comfortable for people to talk about this more openly. Shimon Russell, uh, who I assume you've heard of, um, is uh, has become a very very outspoken, you know, speaker on the topic. He's speaking in Lakewood and in and in many from communities. You know, really, you know, when you when you start dealing with mental health and addiction and recovery, you know, the the borders and the walls between the communities come comes down immediately. Um, but he gives examples of that. You know, he says from the kids who were in Shul and there's, you know, there's always that one kid who can walk into Shul and can daven beautifully and everyone's turning to their kids and saying, you know, how come you don't daven like that kid? And and suddenly we find ourselves that really uh, there's a lot of religious trauma around things that should have been basic, but seem to seem to have become things that are really a struggle um, for our kids. And sometimes it's our parents did it to us. Sometimes it's stuff that we pushed ourselves into. Um, would you be comfortable to uh, dig into that a little bit more? Like besides, what, what do you mean by spiritual trauma? Besides maybe some of the obvious thing where a, a parent might shame their child and say, hey, how come you aren't learning like that other child or, or something like that? Absolutely. And just a disclaimer that, you know, what, whatever we can talk about today is obviously going to have so many additional layers. Um, you know, so I find with, with working with those coming into our, our, our rehab center from the Jewish community, they often carry with them uh, a, a story, a, a baggage, so to speak. Um, and oftentimes, whatever one's negative experiences were, that everyone in the world, you know, might have a similar narrative, whether they're Jewish or not, you know, struggles within the family, struggles within school. Um, and, and, and so there's so much to process sometimes just that alone. When these struggles occur in the context of religious community, you know, it could be somebody who is, is having struggles in learning, but it's done within the yeshiva. Somebody can have issues with, with family, but it's a religious family. And so I find that many of the clients who I work with are often coming in and the, the religious, spiritual, and cultural 
experiences all get kind of looped into one big, uh, one big mess. Um, and so often the first work is just separating out one's own religious beliefs, you know, when it comes to myself and God and just that relationship itself can be and often is, you know, layers upon layers of, of exploration. Um, one's own experiences, though, within a religious community. You know, oftentimes people who are struggling with addiction and mental health, there's something in their story that makes them a, a bit different than, than, the, than the norm. Um, again, whether it's growing up in, in their school system, whether it's, you know, meeting community, um, you know, expectations or definitions of what it means to be a functional member of society. And so when my struggles are occurring within that context, it's very easy for me now to associate together everything about Judaism, Yiddishkeit, uh, Jewish community, maybe my own negative experiences with one Rebbe or one religious family member, and to come in and to now say, okay, you know, I want nothing to do with religion. And so a lot of times the process just is disentangling um, these different pieces. You know, I kind of separate out religion spirituality and culture and just have the narrative surrounding each one of those as a separated uh, experience. And usually that's its own incredibly deep process because like I said, they're coming in and everything is just kind of uh, combined into one and they don't have that space to take a step and to say, this is nothing to do with my, my connection to God. This is nothing to do with my own spirituality. This really has to do with a, a, a trauma like any other, you know, in the context, of, of a religious uh, life. Um, and so usually that becomes part of the, the healing process is just taking a look at one's own experiences, you know, separate from, separate from the, the traumas themselves. First on a most practical level, would you say that it's always the case? Every person who finds themselves um, having a substance, uh, uh, whether it's a substance or a, or a process uh, addiction, is a result of a trauma or is, or can some people just bio biologically just be addicts or is there always a mental health, whether it's a, a, a traumatic event that happened to them or just, you know, they were born with uh, extreme anxiety or depression or bipolar or some other mental health illness. And in order to numb what they call the hole in the soul, you know, they turn to some substances or other things like that. Right. And so this is the million dollar question. I'm so glad that you're you know, bringing this up, because I think to really understand um, any other topic, you know, whether it's religion, spirituality, um, you know, in context of, of addiction, and we really do have to take, you know, kind of 20 steps back and just, you know, address, address the question that you're asking. And I think one of the issues, you know, going on today, um, not only in the from community, but a community at large, is really collapsing uh, addiction, mental health, trauma all into this one one category and i think that we really need to start separating and understanding that people can arrive in these struggles um, people can end up you know needing treatment um, from many many different uh, points of entry um, so yes for some really where it starts is an organic you know a biological mental health struggle you know there are many uh, many in our community just like in any other community and i would say the statistics are probably very similar um, who, who come with, with an organic uh, depression, uh, bipolar disorder, OCD, anxiety, um, various, and I'll even add on, um, not that this is necessarily mental health per se, but people coming in with learning, certain learning disabilities, um, cognitive issues, social deficits. And as 
part of coping and self-soothing with that issue, some of our, you know, young men and women are, um, you know, turning to to self-medication for that. And by the time they enter into a treatment center, you know, we're looking at the surface level uh, issues, which now has become the addictive, uh, you know, substance or behavior. But really, we have to disentangle and rewind back to the beginning and take a look at the mental health issue and make sure that that is properly understood, diagnosed, evaluated, and medicated. And that becomes a critical part of the addiction treatment. For others, they entered into it because there was a, a trauma, you know, a complex trauma or an acute trauma. Some people grew up um, in a traumatic uh, environment. Some people went through um, specific traumas. And so then that created a cycle uh, of pain and, and, and other uh, issues, whether it was you know, social issues, whether it was been a depression um, or the like, emerging uh, from that. And again, addiction might have been a, a very natural and understandable um, means to self-soothe. But then when we really need to address that issue, we also have to dial back and, and process the trauma. And there may or may not be an additional mental health issue. Um, some people, you know, turn to addiction like any others because they're experimenting um, and it's a fun, it's, there is an excitement to it. And then because of an addictive gene and a vulnerability that does, you know, trigger the cycle of addiction. And so I think that we really, as a, as a community, of course, mental health professionals, but I think families, um, parents, educators need to understand there are several different uh, trajectories, several different paths into addiction. And so it might, they might all end up literally in the same group in a treatment center. But a really good individualized care means understanding the unique issues for the person that have lent themselves to addiction and making sure that all of those over time, you know, become comprehensively addressed. So religion and spirituality, back to your original question, um, are, are not definitely part of the story at all. But usually there is going to be pieces of it that are going to fit in either with the mental health struggle, the trauma, uh, the learning issues. And so it becomes part of the story that also requires its own separate analysis. Fascinating, fascinating. You remind me of a line I heard from Sonny Perlman, uh, who, who again, I, I'm throwing names out. These are different people that we've met, you know, on our journey. Um, I'm sure you know some of them, um, maybe all of them. Um, feel, feel free to acknowledge. Sonny's a gaggle. Anyone who uh, needs uh, to get into addiction, uh, uh, further understanding should absolutely reach out to Sani. Yeah, so, so yeah, so Sani runs um, our village. It's a it's a sober living home in Muncie, but uh, he's he's just a wise, really just a smart guy. So he said a great line on the question of, of mental health and recovery. He says that there's so much support for those who are in addiction recovery and so little support for those who are in mental health recovery. And uh, he said he said if someone has a mental health situation he said it jokingly, but he said it, they'd almost do themselves a favor to start drinking. And like this, they could get the support for both because the support in the recovery community is so robust and the mental health community is so, so, so sparse. And like this, they could actually get the help that they truly need. So let me, let me ask, let me kind of bring this back a little bit to some of the very practical questions, even though I want to get back into the philosophical stuff, just because you raised some questions. When you open up Sadly, you know, a, a friend of mine, a wise friend of mine said, if you want to know what's going on in the community, don't read the articles in the Ami or the Meshbacha magazine. He said, look at the ads, look, look, look at the ads, and then you'll see, because because the market doesn't lie. So if you look at the ads in any of these, you know, Jewish from magazines, 
there are recovery centers, addiction treatment centers, mental health treatment centers. Based on the conversation thus far, would you would you make a distinction between a recovery center, which is specific to mental health, specific to recovery, or do they essentially overlap so much that you gotta, you know, every addiction recovery center has psychiatrists and therapists on staff. So should we even bother making a distinction if someone is actually looking for some kind of help? This is this is again also a very very powerful question because you know I unfortunately know firsthand how the when when someone is struggling and we know that a person a child a loved one needs help then the next the next uh, struggle becomes where do I start there are so many treatment centers out there there are so many programs residential PHP IOP all of these three letter words you know that I don't even know what they mean some of them talk about being addiction focused some of them talk promise that they're mental health. Some of them offer kosher food. Some of them don't. Like, where do I start? And I have, you know, had the unfortunate privilege of speaking to many, many families who are in that that moment. Um, and so I would say, you know, this is obviously very, very case by case. Um, but we, while, you know, we can philosophically understand, you know, how and where addiction can, can emerge from, in that moment, it is very important to take a look at what is the most risky um, uh, behavior that's going on and make sure that, that a treatment program can properly uh, treat, stabilize, and understand that that presenting issue. So, if, if for example, um, you know, Rahman Alassan, someone is, uh, is is just overdosed on on, on heroin, um, you know, that that's not the time to take a look at, you know, all the the, the the factors leading up to that to make sure that a treatment center, you know, is particularly uh, targeted toward that. You no, know, in that moment, we need to make sure that they are going to a proper detox and a, and a treatment center that can handle the very complexity you know, of, of an opiate addiction. Um, and so most programs are designed to, to be able to address, you know, both obviously the addiction piece and the mental health piece. Um, I would say, you know, we want to make sure a treatment program is, is, is equipped, um, but it's not the time to, you know, to start doing uh, fancy diagnoses, um, you know, at that moment. So we do have to look at, you know, where this story has led to today and first address that, that issue. And then we can start rewinding the tape backwards. So first stop the bleeding, and then once things are stable, you can reassess, is this person in the right place? Uh, maybe they need more robust, more focused treatment in, a, in, a, in either in that place or in a different, different treatment center, is what you're saying. Exactly. And so if what's you know, presenting in the moment is a, is a manic episode, um, you know, and that's, and that's you know, what is currently um, the most uh, pressing issue, you know, that's not the time again to start, you know, saying, okay, is there trauma here? Or is there not? No, then we need to, right, we need to stop the bleeding. We need to make sure that that, that mental health, um, you know, symptom is, is properly stabilized. And then you know, once they're in a safe, supportive environment, then we can start taking a look at the bigger picture. Got it. Okay. So let me, let me circle back to something that we were talking about before, and then we'll kind of dive a little deeper into some of the other practical stuff. You mentioned about religious trauma and untangling the mess, and I get it. Uh, I can't think of, well, I shouldn't uh, paint with such a broad brush, such a broad brush, but I, it, we all have our re religious traumas, and some of it is, now, now we're learning about uh, intergenerational trauma, and some of it that we've gotten from our parents and grandparents from the Holocaust or whatnot, et cetera. But for a from Jew, is the only place where you can untangle that specific religious trauma in at a Jewish treatment center, a Jewish facility, or a Jewish or a facility that has a Jewish track, or 
can it ultimately be done elsewhere? And I, and I know that's a philosoph- uh, you know, almost like a philosophical question, but it, but it really isn't for many. Many people end up places, and then the question is, is, should they have gone elsewhere? Maybe they need to do another stint elsewhere to get more clarity. It's a bonus to have a, a from religious track or program, but is it, a, is it a necessity for getting better if, you're, if your trauma is religious-based? I, I I get I get the question you know very deeply and this is really something that I have um, become you know particularly passionate about right which which elements uh, of Judaism you know should be part and parcel of the treatment process themselves um, and you know there's there's certainly a, a lot of different uh, schools of thought um, and so I can just speak you know from my my own experiences you know working with uh, with with clients up close and personal. Um, you know, who did come into to our Jewish programming. And I would say, and, and to answer this question, really, again, it's, it's kind of paralleling some of the other uh, things we've discussed, you know, about there being a place in time, you know, to address each element of the, you know, the broader, uh, let's call it, you know, the clinical portrait of a person who is struggling. Um, what, what I have found is that the focus absolutely needs to be trauma, mental health, or addiction first. And the religious, spiritual components are, are so uh, tussle, you know, so to speak, uh, in, in that regard, and really should never be the focus, meaning, you know, you'll have parents who are asking about, um, you know, kosher food and whether they're Shabbos and whether, you know, my son can put on tefillin in, in the program. And so, no, the, the first thing is to get the person um, stable and emotionally healthy and, and make sure that their, you know, their mental health has to come first. And, you know, this is not uh, something I'm here to, uh, to pass in, but I know there, there are many who will say, you know, when, when somebody is a chola, and so there's really, from a shulchan perspective, you know, we're not taking a look um, at any of those elements. However, well, I, on the deeper Devar, Devar, I want to interrupt you because I, I, I feel the need just from our own journey to underscore what you just said. I think people just do not understand what you just said and don't understand that that because I made the exact mistake you talked about looking, oh, is there kosher? How can you keep Shabbos? There was one of the most beautiful things I saw just before Pesach this year, and I wonder if you saw them. There was a couple of uh, clips running around the WhatsApps with a couple of real gedolim, real halachic um, poskim, saying to those who are in recovery, "Don't drink." Obviously, you're completely fulfilling your obligation with grape juice. But if you need to go to a meeting, if you need to talk to your sponsor, get on the phone. If you need to drive to the meeting, drive to the meeting. And they, they were possibly, they weren't philosophizing. They're saying, because this is more important than anything else you're doing. And people just don't know that because it, it, it goes against the grain of what, what we've been trained to think. So I, I, I'm, I, I'm just highlighting what you said, because I think people truly need to hear that. Oh, exactly. And I think that, that, uh, that speaks volumes itself. The fact that somebody can, quote unquote, break Shabbos, to attend uh, a 12-step meeting, I think shows the the potency and the therapeutic value um, of of these aspects, as well as you know on the hierarchy, you know what, what the priority is when somebody is struggling. Um, and so again, disclaimer, you know every every Shaila needs to of course be asked on a case by case basis. But what I can tell you from you know having this list of of creating um, a Jewish program within. A, a traditional treatment center, and now having the opportunity to work in, a, in an all-Jewish um, outpatient program, Onward Living, I can say that while the the focus is not on religious uh, rituals and experiences, 
um, you know, themselves. And we are in a, a period of crisis, a period of treatment, just like if somebody needs cancer uh, chemotherapy, we wouldn't be asking, you know, in that moment about uh, some type of religious um, need. But part and parcel of the comfort and the clinical work for a person coming from a Jewish community, whether they are currently practicing or not, is often going to require a cultural competency during the therapeutic process. And what I mean by that is if there is a, a young man struggling with mental health, struggling with addiction, and he is in a, in, in a, um, a traditional treatment program, there are likely going to be moments while processing whatever it is that he's needing to process where a familiarity with the specific cultural uh, you know, norms that he's coming from are going to be very, very important. So on the basic of level, you know, having a program that understands Orthodox culture is, is really key. Um, and what I've also found on a deeper level, so there's, you know, what happens in the clinical rooms and then having the, the comfort of, of Shabbos, having the option to keep kosher food, that itself is often something that will, will come up for a person um, on a deeper level, uh, in, in an identity level. And I've worked with many, many people who come in traumatized. They say, I never want to talk to another Jewish person again. Get me, you know, the heck out of, of my Jewish community. And yet when they come into a treatment center and they see, you know, a staff member who is obviously uh, Orthodox and, you know, that there is a, a, an option for, for Shabbos, whether it's just, you know, challah and grape juice, you know, on a Friday night, or even on a deeper level, there is a, a group. Um, that is about discussing experiences in the Jewish community, I would say nine times out of 10, there is something within the person that then gets triggered and they actually seek it out. I'll, I'll never forget one story. You know, there was a, a young woman who is, is was coming in and really wanted nothing to do with the Jewish community, just various uh, traumas that she went through. Um, and she, she, she wanted to blend in. Um, and that's why she came to a, a traditional treatment center. And then when she saw me, she just came over to me and she just introduced herself with her Hebrew name. That was it. You know, she walked away. Um, but there was that there's that longing not only for, for connection in terms of what resources uh, spirituality can provide, but the ability to really connect and to process is something that is very, very difficult to, to tease apart during this very vulnerable time for somebody. And so my, my simple answer is that what should be focused on is the quality and comprehensiveness of, of the of the mental health and addiction treatment. But yet, oftentimes there is an incredible comfort um, and an incredible opportunity to process some of these deeper experiences when there is staff um, who, who understands, when there is some type of component that is a, a Jewish component. And you know, for each family and for each individual, what that needs to look like is going to be case by case. But I think that we do need to underscore the importance of processing one's Jewish identity and experiences at some point during this process. Got it. I, I completely understand what you're saying. And when you mentioned about each one going through their specific experiences, obviously I'm reflecting in my own mind about some of the stuff that I've seen firsthand. And some of what you're saying resonates deeply in the other parts. I realize just everyone is going to go on their own, own journey and on their own track. Just a technical question. You mentioned that onward living has has a, a pretty pretty visibly orthodox staff, and then you also mentioned that it's outpatient. Is it outpatient only, or is it a inpatient treatment center as well? Yes. So onward living is a, is a, an outpatient program um, that does though have a, a wraparound 
uh, monitoring uh, service, um, which I, you know, I'm happy to to explain more. Um, but it is, yes, it's an outpatient, and then we do have a sister facility that is uh, in inpatient as well. Got it. I ask that because, again, without making this about me, because I really want people to get an understanding. Let's put it this way: those who who enter into this world probably do so unwillingly, but once they get there, they get a a, a lightning speed education. Um, I, I think that a, a big part of how we found some success was having a the place that you used to work at was a Jewish track within a non-Jewish facility. And I think it kind of had a little bit of the benefits of both. So I think it's good for people to know that that these things are out there. And maybe when we're done, we'll give your contact info. If people want to reach out to you just for guidance as to what, you know, where they where they might want to look at if they're finding themselves in this situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to, if I can just you know, clarify, you know, one point, because I know, you know, when we're talking about this concept of religion and spirituality, you know, in the context of treatment itself, you know, I think you'll, you'll hear me, and, you know, kind of go back and forth between this concept of religious trauma, you know, that a person can have negative experiences um, that do color and influence, you know, their, their desire to continue practicing, their desire to continue remaining in the Jewish community. And so, right, creating that space. Um, and on the other hand, what we know, of course, about the 12 steps of recovery is that it, it is such a, a spiritual process. And ultimately, you know, we're really tapping into the tremendous therapeutic power of spirituality. And so I think it's, it, it's just worthwhile to kind of just give a moment to the fact that within one person's experience, they are tapping into the positives that, that, you know, spirituality and Yiddishkeit have to offer along this journey. While on the other hand, um, they, uh, they might have had these negative experiences. And so holding space for that is really a huge part of the process, meaning showing that a person can have, on the one hand, have gone through certain negative experiences that have a religious Jewish flavor. While on the other hand, seeking such solace ultimately in in one's own relationship to to higher power and support of the Jewish community. I mean, I can't uh, underscore that enough. You know, many people coming into treatment. Um, you know, we, I used to joke with my staff that only a Jewish client had. You know, coming in, we would have to sign releases for this rabbi, this family member, this director of an organization. Um, you know, these ten people from his past treatment periods. I mean, every Jewish client, for the most part, is coming in with a team. And so many people from the Jewish community in this person's corner. And so that part, of course, you know, fellowship is a huge part of recovery. And having that built in, you know, I call Jewish recovery a fellowship within a fellowship. Because that, that component of, of Jewish living um, is often also so unbelievably powerful. And so I think just kind of paralleling the fact that we can, we can say that people have had negative experiences that have, you know, at least correlated um, or strengthens, you know, some of the, the experiences that they later have, you know, with, with addiction and mental health. On the flip side, so much of the ultimate uh, strength comes from rebuilding one's internal Yiddishkeit, one's internal connection to, 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 to Hashem, whether they return to formal practicing or not, um, and seeking the support of Jewish community and beautiful Jewish recovery fellowships that exist around the country. You know, that sounds like, it, it, like the paradox. 
But on the other hand, you know, this is really what a lot of time these young men and women um, experience. It, it's confusing that I might have some negative experiences with Yiddishkeit. On the other hand, these are the people who are saving me. On the other hand, building my own connection to Hashem is so meaningful to me. And making sense of that um, is such a large part of, you know, what, um, what this work involves. You know, one of the questions I was going to ask you was, what's your thoughts on the 12 steps in Yiddishkeit? But, but you, you went there and you went there hard. <laughs> um, I, I, I'll just say that, that for, for I think for those who don't know, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with Rabbi Shea Taub's book, you know, God of Our Understanding, you know, as he right. takes you through the 12 steps and, and Yiddishkeit, I, I think it couldn't be more true. And I've, I've witnessed this in-house and with others that, like you said, a lot of people have to journey around and, and make their journey where they, in, in the way and in the time that they need to get there. What is, what is that, what's the expression? Time takes time. But the 12 steps really work in the steps. Actually, I, I, I watched it take people through the journey and kind of like uh, help them develop a new relationship with Hashem, one without the trauma, one without all the uh, baggage that may have gotten them in trouble in the first place. Uh, and that's, I think, such an important uh, point there. Um, you know, no pun intended, right? Th there is a, a process of steps that happen alongside this this journey for for anybody. Again, whatever their their point of entry into a struggle with addiction was, again, whether it's mental health related, trauma related, um, or, or or otherwise. But for right, for many of them, they 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 end up in a place where they're having to now redefine not only the relationship with themselves, the relationship with others, and yes, ultimately their relationship with Hashem. And that's why this concept of religious trauma work becomes so important, because if they're, if they're coming into this with some type of obstacle when it comes to them and God, whether, again, it's misassociations because of prior experiences in the religious community, their own shame that they might experience um, with, within that context for, for various reasons, that would be its own uh, you know, several-hour discussion. But to, to really um, kind of come out and cut through the weeds um, and process those things that will be obstacles and impediments toward a healthy connection to spirituality is such an important um, part of this journey. Because as you said, for many, many people where they're going to end up with long-term recovery and long-term healing is going to be some type of work related to 12 steps. Or if, even if somebody's not in a 12-step program, you know, really rebuilding that sense, that core sense of self, that core sense of, of, of relational, um, you know, health, again, oftentimes involving some spiritual uh, higher power. So we really do need to spend time breaking through those weeds. And so just to kind of connect it back in terms of trying to look for treatment programs, you know, th it's important to understand as a religious family that there might be steps here. The healthier and healthier we can help uh, get your son or daughter um, on an emotional well-being level and cut through those weeds, whether, again, it's mental health struggle, whether it's trauma that's needing to be processed, whether it's other deficits that need to be better understood and treated, we are actually making them more able to experience a relationship with Hashem, whether, again, that means practical um, avodah Hashem, you know, through through actual uh, observance, or whether that's just being in a healthier place to to redefine that relationship to them and take their own path there. So the more that we're healthily targeting uh, emotional well-being, the more they're likely going to be able to re reconnect with with that. And I would say the opposite. You know, if somebody is not in a healthy place, even if on the surface they're able to be observant, 
ultimately, if they're not internalizing, because there is some internal barrier, um, you know, they're, they're not setting themselves up for, for long-term religious health either. And so I think it is very important to really see this as, as steps. Um, and I think that, you know, that's why the 12 steps are designed in, in, in that order. Right. That, again, Chase Taub um, dives into this in a real deep way, how obviously, well, the 12 steps, you know, the origins from Dr. Barber, not very obviously Jewish, they're definitely um, of another faith, but they certainly have enough parallels and have been able to, you know, Rabbi Dr. Tversky and, and other real Jewish recovery leaders have really made it clear that, that it's completely kosher and, and uh I know I see it on both on on all sides on the, on the attic side on the Al-Anon side. It's it's incredibly powerful stuff, and um, I think any frankly anyone who even if you don't have direct uh, direct connection to recovery, it's it's worthwhile to get to know it and to understand the steps and 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 see how it can really improve a person's life on on so many levels. Okay, I want I want to I want to shift the topic over here for a minute and kind of go to the Yiddish mama part of this conversation. Um, if it, but, but feel free to jump in if there's something else you want to add to stuff we've been talking about before. It, it, it feels- We're happy to, to move to that topic. And like, I believe everything kind of intersects with every other uh, you know, topic when, when, when we're dealing with mental health and addiction. Right, I agree. And it, it's, it's not different topics. It's, it's different uh, just where we're shining the light on a little bit. So let's 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 talk about just the from community mental health addiction recovery. Is it go is is from your vantage point and you're really in the field a lot more than most others? Is it new? What's going on now? Why are we dealing with this right now? What's what's happening? And and maybe the better question is 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 what can we do about it? Because so much of of Jewish life is intertwined with. Uh, you know, socially, it's, you know, the, the Kiddush club during the rabbi sermon or or what's called baining, you know, at banish mushas before shout people drinking. And again, I'm, I'm not excusing or, or suggesting that these are acceptable behaviors. I'm just stating that they are a fact. To on the religious level, Kiddush, we just finished Pesach, the four cups. Um, it, it, it's such a central part of, of Jewish life. So I, I guess if I had that question, is something new going on? What is it? Why? And what can we do about it? I know that's such a broad question, but come at it from whatever direction you want. Yeah, sure. It's, it's a broad question, but it's such an important question. Um, and I certainly am not, cannot claim to be, you know, a sociological expert or, you know, have done a, a sweeping uh, research study, you know, on, on, on the Jewish community um, and why, you know, there's this prevalence now. I, I really spend a lot, you know, more my my time, my focus and, you know, kind of, I guess, my my specialty is really diving deep into each each individual's um, world um, when it comes to their struggle. But from 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 that experience, you know what I what I'm seeing more and more, and just you know putting together some some patterns in terms of the phone calls that I receive, you know, from families looking for for help, um, is that these are these are very uh, normative human uh, struggles. You know, again, struggles with. With mental health, you know, why Hashem created people, you know, who one of the nisyonos that we have falls into you know, the realm of emotional well-being is, is, you know, something beyond me. But, you know, there are very just biological, um, you know, uh, issues when it comes to these things. Um, and addiction, you know, itself is, is, a, is a 
age-old uh, problem. Um, again, trauma also. At, from every single culture and background, we're going to have people who are going to be uh, undergoing uh, traumatic stories that are going to now leave people um, with, with very uh, predictable, unfortunately, uh, consequences. Um, and so I think that on each individual issue, you know, we want to call it you know, the, the rate of the diagnoses themselves sweeping through the Jewish community, you know, I, I, I would have to think that it's, it's not that it, it's, it's not new. I think that because of the tight-knit nature of our communities, and I think because people, um, you know, really do have certain stigmas, as cliche as this sounds, you know, I, can, I hear it in the mother's voice how alone she feels in thinking that she's the only person, um, you know, who, whose son is going through a, a challenge because nobody around her is, is talking about it. Um, though, of course, you know, as you said, lightning speed education, when somebody does enter into it, then we find out there is this whole um, world of Jewish recovery in terms of supports and in terms of other things. But until somebody is confronting it head on, you know, these are topics that people do approach um, with, with some type of, uh, of fear um, in terms of the fallout, in terms of judgment, in terms, of course, of Shadduchim and, and all these things. But on a deeper level, I think um, there's also, while there's incredible amounts of education and people now around the country, different Rabbanim, you know, such as yourself, different educators who are, of course, speaking about it, I think that, you know, it, there, there is some obstacles that people face in the early stages. And once they now push through that obstacle and they do reach out for help, um, then I think it just becomes, um, you know, I, I think it becomes an issue of, of what to do next. And I think that because we are all uh, one community, um, I think that's probably what's creating this sense that uh, these issues are, are becoming worse and worse. I think that across, you know, across the globe, the, the, the rates are probably very equal. But what happens to a family when there is struggle, I think there are unique cultural issues um, and unique cultural fears. And I think that when we can crack the code of that, I think then we're going to be uh, you know, in, in a much better place. I love that. I feel like we are definitely making progress. It is maybe because I now have a, a more than a, a people, but a, a huge wide window into that world. And, and they see that there really is, you know, part of, uh, besides going on my Al-Anon, part of a, a, a Jewish, uh, online Jewish reco uh, recovery meeting group. And it's it's everywhere. It's all communities from Hasidish, uh, you know, Litvish, you know, you know, Teaneck, Five Towns. It doesn't matter what flavor. It's everywhere. So, and and I think just you know to add on, and I think the reason why you'll hear this, this buzzword of stigma, you know, so much when talking about this is because um, what what stigma does, meaning when there is a fear that I'm not just reaching out now because my you know my son or daughter has a uh, you know diabetes or, or cancer, God forbid, or, or something in that realm, because mental health is, you know, tied with all types of layers of associations about what it means and, and how, are, you know, what, how are people going to judge this person and our family? And what is this going to mean for this person long term? Um, I, I think because of that, because of the stigma, there is a, often a delay. There is a delay, I think, in seeking help. And we do wait until it gets to a cer certain threshold. And then by then, the issue is so pronounced and I think that might be coloring our understanding of how prevalent the issue is. Whereas if there were more preventative measures, um, you know, in the community and perhaps more education, you know, in the school system, um, in the communities at large, so that we would really know the warning signs. Um, I, I think that, you know, that, that might be 
um, definitely a, a step forward, you know, which is easier said than done. Um, and I know there are many organizations who are kind of devoting themselves to prevention work, but I would, I would venture to say that because oftentimes we, we see people who it's come to a head and there's no more denying the problem or the, you know, the, the addiction, um, you know, whereas if we probably cycled it back a few years, you know, we may have been able to, to target it then. Right. So let me pick it, uh, pick up on that. So basically we're, we're not going to stop the kiddish club and we're not going to stop, you know, I know with guys and a different from circles, it's a thing, you know, who's got the fancier scotches or who's got the fancier wines and the more expensive stuff. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to stop that. That's not, that's not happening. What we can hope maybe at best to do is like what you were just saying is get more education out there, speak more openly, get more prominent voices to speak more, publicly get it into the yeshivas into the boys schools into the girls schools and uh you know keep you know keep keep an eye out but at the end of the day whether you know we're talking about drugs and alcohol over here but it, yeah. it, like 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 was true with when nancy reagan said you know say no to drugs or or or, or encouraging kids to stay away from cigarettes the best we can do is educate them try to guide them and pray I know this, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm trying to schlep out of you uh, a more concrete, uh, practical thing we can do to protect our kids. And it, it doesn't sound like there's too much other than Davin Tashem really hard. Yes, Davening, Davening always. And I think, you know, on a concrete level, um, you know, it, it's really beyond, beyond the, the open, curious, accepting lookout for, for various challenges. Um, that can be addressed when they are smaller challenges. Um, you know, if, if, if somebody is struggling in school um, and you find that there already is, you know, a, a sense of feeling different from the crowd, um, if somebody does have a, a more minor, um, you know, uh, mental health struggle, whether they are, you know, anxious, whether they're presenting um, with depression, whether they're presenting with, uh, with issues surrounding ADHD, um, you know, and, and, and it is affecting um, learning. Um, I, I think opening up a, a dialogue earlier on so that if somebody, if a child, if a teenager is struggling, um, you know, we can intervene earlier than later. Again, like I mentioned earlier, there are different pathways. So if it's a mental health pathway, that means being open to hearing and, and accepting that your child might need um, a medication, um, your child might need therapy, um, you know, really taking, taking a look rather than a blind eye. You know, not to say that anyone takes a blind eye, but getting even more curious about what your child might be experiencing um, and, and trying to, to intervene, you know, sooner, sooner than later. Because very rarely when someone is struggling with drugs or alcohol, does the treatment involve any discussions around drugs and alcohol? You know, you go into a rehab and, of course, we're going to discuss relapse prevention and we're going to discuss all the, you know, the, the specific challenges. But ultimately, we're taking a look under the hood. And we're talking about the, the feelings and the experiences that led to drugs and alcohol being such an enticing uh, mode of self-soothing. And that is what is going to ultimately need to be addressed and, and treated. Right. Okay. And that really cannot be underscored enough. I mean, and, and then sadly, sometimes you can do all the right things and educate the kid and get them therapy and or get them on meds for for you know any any of the uh, diagnoses that you just mentioned you know depression anxiety adhd you know could be even more serious stuff and sometimes 
with all that, they're still in pain and they're just going to numb that pain. Anyways, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be dark. I'm, I'm, I, I love what you said. At the end of the day, if you can get ahead of it, you win. But but not always do you win. So let me, let me because we're starting to run, run out of time and I have like so many more things I want to ask you. So I'm going to, hey, hey, I'm going to copy what all these people do on the radios, but, you know, do a bit of a lightning round, a bunch of like kind of quick questions just to see if we can cover a lot in a short time. So one of the things that I wished was out there when, when I needed it, and, and it was kind of out there, there's excellent organizations, Amudim and, and uh, um, uh, Oh, I forgot their name. Links. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it's escaping me for a moment. Um, there, there are some organizations, but let's let's just talk on a practical level. A person finds that their child. You keep on mentioning about children, but the truth is, this is spouses and everything as well. Someone finds that some a close loved one is is uh, using drugs, alcohol. You know, the lighter drugs, heavier drugs. You know, what's step one? Just on a practical level, what's step one? So I think step one is going to depend on the, the extremeness of, of what's happening. So if a person is already in need of a detox because they are already using, um, you know, heavily, then step one is likely going to be getting them into a, a rehab facility where they can safely detox um, and, and be, you know, forcibly away from, from the substance or, or, or the drink um, or the behavior. Um, if a person is suspecting, you know, that their child or loved one is struggling, you know, step one, uh, first and foremost, is going to be to have a conversation with that person and to see what uh, what they're willing to do. I mean, um, you know, stages of change is, is huge here. Oftentimes when a person needs help, not, they don't realize that. And so the type of help that's going to be effective is, of course, going to depend also on the person's motivation and willingness, which is, uh, you know, again, a separate conversation for, for another time. Um, but really trying to get the person into some type of evaluation sooner than later. So whether that is a private practitioner um, whether that is a rehab center, you know, again, depending on, on the severity. But really going to um, a trusted professional. And for some, you know, we have these beautiful organizations, as you mentioned, Relief, Amudim, um, you know, and others. And these are going to be a good front line if, if we don't know what's needed, um, because, you know, they, they will be able to help uh, to assess. But really the first step is an assessment, assessment and then an assessment of the person's readiness for change. Right, and most people at that early stage, uh, certainly for children, they're not not super honest, especially if if the drug and alcohol are really helping them. And I, you know, for those who know a little bit in the world of recovery, it, it is the answer to their problem. It's just the wrong answer. So if they're really hurting and this is solving the solving the problem, very often you won't necessarily get truth out of them. But but at least to try and see if you can get them on board. Let let me ask you. Segue question. It may be too broad, and maybe you don't want to address it now. Um, do you have any thoughts on forcing children into treatment who are who are under eighteen, and you legally have the ability to make, to make that happen? All right. So this this is case by case, of course, but I do think it's important to know um, that if somebody is struggling in a way that they cannot um, at all, we cannot rely on their their willingness to to go. Right. There are you know for those cases. Um, you know, times where legal, man, you know, being legally mandated is important, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, a Marchman Act, a Baker Act, you know, other, other things. And I think this is why it's very, very, very important um, for the family to also be working with, with somebody to help guide them in their in individual case. Um, and, I, and I also cannot stress that enough. I think families often will look at only what that person needs in this moment 
and not realize that it's not about figuring out only what they need, but right, what they're willing to do and how can I as a parent or a spouse, um, you know, influence that decision. And so working with, you know, a family systems uh, therapist and interventionist, there are people in the community and outside of the community um, who really this is what they're here for because the family should not be ever making this decision for themselves. They're too emotional and they don't have the information. They don't have the, the knowledge. So, so many reasons, right? They're so close to it. They're not professionals, um, you know, in, in this sense. It's very, very difficult, especially if it's for one's child, um, you know, to, to really have the, the objectivity. Um, a, a lot of families will, will worry about rupturing their, their relationship and their trust and make decisions, uh, you know, based upon that. This is a medical uh, crisis you know, like any other. But unfortunately, this particular medical crisis has so many other pieces to it, um, you know, and, that, and does affect relationships. It does affect so many big big uh, parts of one's life as we started touching upon. And so for all of that, it's not just about finding the treatment center and dropping your loved one off and then expecting, you know, he's gonna, he or she is going to come out fixed and everything will be better. This is a long-term process. And so the biggest suggestion I can give to any family who is struggling with this is, to really loop in somebody who can work with the entire family system, the entire family unit as early as possible. Because these questions, should I mandate one into treatment? How do I go about forcing one into getting help? How do I even know what type of help is necessary? Do they need a rehab? Do they need an outpatient therapist? Do they just need a counselor? Do they just need a, you know, a hug from us? You know, all of these questions are, are incredibly important and should not be made alone nor should families in the Jewish community feel like they are alone um, in this struggle. And that, that is another thing I do want to put out there. There are wonderful support groups um, for, for families who are going through this. And I think if we can do nothing else but just start to break through that barrier of shame and loneliness, um, that itself will be setting people up for better treatments. Because if we don't take that first step in looking for, for treatments, um, you know, we are going to inevitably out of, out of desperation put the, the, our loved one into a program or into a place that's not necessarily right for them. And so all of these things kind of uh, come together. The more support that I have for myself as a parent or a spouse um, or a child um, of someone, a parent struggling, the more I'm going to be able to have the, the strength and the clarity and the insight to make the healthier decisions for them clinically. So the more that we can take a step back and not rush into a, a, a decision, the, the better. Right, right. I, I think that's so important. And uh, obviously, the people who need it don't know how to find it. And the people who know how to find it are usually after the fact. It, it, you have any just practical, uh, is that, when you say, as a step one, amodim, relief, if a person has had no experience, what would be your... Yeah, um, what would be your first place to go to? Like, yeah, like I, don't, I, I, don't have a I don't have a family therapist. I don't know what to do. I have a crisis. Yeah. So I would definitely say, you know, again, from just my own humble experience, um, you know, on the inside of these of the treatment programs, um, I can say, yes, using our community resources is a great first step. Amudim, Relief, um, Mass, you know, these are great organizations and others that I, I apologize I'm, I'm neglecting to mention. Um, but any any of our family, you know, of our specific community organizations. Um, but at that same time, the second most practical piece of advice is to make sure that w whichever family member this is of yours, that you are still receiving 
support for yourself because you are not going to be able to tackle this long-term process with the strength and clarity needed if you do not have your own support. Yes. So I would you, say the next call after a them and after your loved one is secured is finding your own support. Yes, I I, I, I so completely identify with that. We, 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 we're running out of time, so therefore we're not going to get to that right now. Maybe we'll have a part two because I have so many more questions that, you know, I think a lot of them I know, um, but I want to hear your thoughts on them. And I think the community needs to hear like, you know, things like what can you expect to see, find at a treatment center and what's the definition of, that, definition of success? But I think, you know, the idea whether it's Al-Anon or, or, or CODA or wh whatever support group people find for themselves, even just a private therapist, but there, there's absolutely, that's so essential or you will collapse unless even if you're made of steel, you're going to collapse and fall apart and and then the, all the other people around you are also going to suffer from that. So that is uh, uh, an extremely important uh, part of the equation as, like you said, maybe step two, first one, stop the bleeding. Step, step two, make sure you're still around to help other people. So I couldn't agree with that more. Exactly. And, and, I'm creating a dynamic within the family that the, the person struggling you know, will be returning back to. And that's why the family system support as well is, is so crucial. Agreed. Okay, so we're, we're basically out of time. Give us something hopeful, because when you talk about statistics of, of recovery, they're, they're, so, they're so not encouraging. Let's just sit and leave it right there. Um, tell us some, some positive, leave us with a, some upbeat, positive success stories. I know that, that one, no two stories are going to be the same, but you've seen many success stories. So, so maybe, you know, if you're, if you're allowed to, without sharing any names, share something positive from your years in, in the field. Absolutely. So I, I will say that as much as the no two stories are the same, you know, I have found working with this population that those who struggle with the, the, these issues are oftentimes such unbelievably special, sensitive, talented individuals um, and sometimes a person's sets of, uh, of strength can, can oftentimes be, be weaknesses as well. And so I will say that these issues, as much as they can, can create such pain and havoc and, and sense of hopelessness because of the nature of these issues and what oftentimes these can lead to, this is a medical issue like any other. And there are very tried and true uh, methods of, of, of healing and treatment and really not losing sight of the fact that there is a person and a neshama who is struggling. And oftentimes it's a very beautiful neshama who is struggling. And so really sticking to the, the, the treatments that's needed and not losing hope in the person um, is, is really important. And so I would say that most of the stories I've worked with are success stories, whether there's lots of turns and, and bumps along the road. Um, but this is a person's journey like any other. And the, though this one has visible scars and some of ours, um, are easy to 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 mask uh, if we have troubles in other areas. Um, you know, there is tremendous amounts of hope, but I think we have to really, um, it's really about our expectations of what that looks like and learning to celebrate the person who is struggling um, for who he or she is, regardless of these challenges, um, I think is, is really, really key here. Yes, yes, yes. I, I've seen that and, and you've seen that and so, it, what comes to mind briefly is, the, is a story that I don't know if it's known outside of the Chabad world. Um, someone once asked uh, Rabbi Dr. Tversky, who, who while well, he was, I, I would definitely call him a Rebbe in his own right, 
but someone, you know, he, he had a lot of close ties to Chabad Hasidus and he, he studied and taught, you know, the Tanya. And someone asked him, you know, why are you sending people to meetings? You know, why don't you send them to a Tanya class? And, and he gave like, I think the best answer you could ever imagine, you know, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, you know, when people will study at a Tanya class, like their life depends on it, the way they study at, at a 12 step or the way they talk at a, and communicate at a, at a 12 step meeting, he says, then I'll start sending them to, to the Tanya class because he says he's, and, and I'm saying that to, the, to your point about you're saying these people are some of the most sensitive, special, sweet um, soul. They, they probably are before they start, but there's no question that they are after they go through this. They become the most authentic, real people that you could ever meet. So that's exactly. certainly this is, I, and I, you know, this is the most beautiful process. And yes, I, you know, we, we tend to look at people in rehab as those who are less than. Um, when really I can tell you there's a reason I choose to spend my days in this environment. Like I said in the beginning, it's because I am truly gaining inspiration from, from this population of individuals. Um, and so really I think to focus on, on that and to see the beauty and the light in the person, you know, regardless of the challenges along the way, um, I, I think that's, that's the greatest success story um, is, is whatever the person's story is and, and tuning into it and learning from it. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, are, are you even available to be got, gotten a hold of, or are you too busy to, to take calls or emails? And, and, oh, and, and that's, that's, that's okay for you to say no. No, that's why I'm here. I view myself as, you know, a shaliach in the community any way that I can. Um, so I will please, you know, I'll send you my information and you can, uh, you can post it uh, along with the video. Uh, right. With the audio, we'll, we'll, we'll post it in the show notes. Any final words? Uh, my final words are really a huge thank you to you. I think, you know, the, the more that we publicize not only this issue, but again, the, the, the hope and the light in this issue, um, I think the, the more hope that we have as a community. So thank you for all of the work uh, that you and your wife do. They are, uh, Devorah, thank you so much for coming on um, for this podcast. And I, I know many people will get help through this. Well, thank you. For Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I'm sure that you have questions or feedback that you'd like to share. And I would love to hear it. So please feel free to reach out through my website at positivecoach.com or on Instagram at a positive coach. If you would like to not miss any of the upcoming episodes, hit the subscribe button and it will let you know when new shows are released. If you could take a moment to leave a rating or a review, it would mean a lot to me and would help others to be able to find our podcast easier. Thank you so much for being here. Wishing you a positive day.